Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Our precious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather and worship this morning. I thank you that as we have lifted our voices to you, as we have put our attention and our focus on you and on your greatness, that we understand that there is nothing that's too difficult for you. I thank you, Lord, that, that we will not be shaken. We know, Lord, that right now all the institutions of our world are being shaken, that governments are being shaken, that the financial system is being shaken, that hospitals and our health systems are being shaken. But your word tells us that we will not be shaken because our trust is in the Lord. Father, I thank you today that as we have gathered here and as we have lifted up your name and been encouraged and lifted up and built up in our own spirit, Father, that we can take all of our cares, all of our anxieties, and we can cast them on you. Your word says that you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us. Your word says that, that, uh, that literally there is no weapon that's fashioned against us that will prosper. The word of God says that if God is, is for us, who can be against us? And so we are reminded of the promises of God this morning. And that is why we cannot be shaken because our foundation is built on the eternal word of God and on a relationship with Jesus Christ our Savior. And so, Father, this morning as we look into your word, I pray that we will be built up in our spirit. I pray that we will be strengthened, O God. And I pray today that by all that is said and done, that the name of our God will be glorified and praised and lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Silver Creek, it's great to be with you this morning here in our online service. We're starting a new series of messages for the month of April called Hope Has a Name. And today I want to share a message with you that I have referred to as Cross My Heart. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of the Passion Week as we lead up to Easter and I want to review just for a brief moment here some of the activities of Passion Week and make sure that we have a, a real perspective of what was leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Starting on Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and the Bible tells us that people gathered from the city of Jerusalem. They rushed out to meet him and the people cried, Hosanna, which means deliver us now. They waved palm branches and laid their garments in front of him as he came into the city. On Monday, Jesus enters the temple and he finds the, the business people there uh, doing business. And, and the Bible says that he had a righteous just indignation because his, his father's house was not being used as a house of prayer. And it says he turned over the tables of the money changer there. On Tuesday... 
we read that Jesus teaches numerous parables to the people. On Wednesday, the chief priests begin to plot to kill Jesus, and Judas offers to actually betray Jesus for them and to them. On Thursday, Jesus and the disciples, they eat the Passover meal together. We read there at the Passover meal what we now refer to as communion or the Lord's Supper, which we will participate in at the end of my message this morning. Jesus also washes their feet. Then after dinner, Jesus takes the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, a place that he had gone to frequently to pray. And he was overcome with such grief there that in the garden as he prayed, Literally, his body had a, a, a reaction to the strain, and, and the Bible says that he sweat great drops of blood. That evening, he was betrayed by Judas, and he was arrested by the Jewish authorities. Over the course of that night, Peter denies knowing Jesus three different times. And early in the morning on Friday, Jesus is tried before a man named Annas, who's the father-in-law of the high priest, he is then sent before the high priest Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and he's tried according to Jewish law. After being tried by the Jewish law, they then take him to the Roman governor Pilate, who sends him on to King Herod, and Herod then in turn sends him back to Pilate, who declares that Jesus is innocent of any crimes with which he is charged. Pilate offers to free Jesus, in fact, according to a Jewish custom, but the Jews instead cry out that Pilate would release to them Barabbas instead. Pilate washes his hands of any guilt as he turns Jesus over to his accusers. He has Jesus flogged, which is to whip, being whipped with a cat of nine tails. Literally, it was, it was something that was so devastating uh, that people often would not live, for that, live through that experience. And then he had a crown of thorns placed on Jesus' head. The Roman soldiers carried out their instructions, and they marched Jesus out to a place outside of the city that was called Golgotha. There Jesus was crucified. His hands and his feet were nailed to the cross, and he remained there until he died. As a means of determining that in fact he was dead, a Roman soldier thrust a sword into Jesus' side, the Bible says, and blood and water flowed, giving the physical indication that Jesus in fact had succumbed to death on the cross. Let me ask you a question this morning. Why do you think it is that Jesus' death was different from all others? As I've thought about that very question this week, I believe it's because not every day does a king come to the earth and die for the people. This morning, I hope you have your Bibles. I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 18, and look at verse 37 with me. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. 
This is a conversation that takes place between Jesus and Pilate following Jesus' arrest, but before he was flogged. I want you to notice Pilate's words to Jesus there in verse 37. He says, you are a king then. This is a statement, not a question. I think that's really important for us to recognize because several verses earlier, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? So that Jesus' response up until that point had brought Pilate to a place where Pilate is actually making the statement, you are a king then. According to the Matthew Poole commentary, Pilate seems to have spoken this in mockery or in derision rather than any desire to catch Jesus in his words or to trap Jesus. So Pilate hadn't all of a sudden trapped Jesus and said, Aha, you're really a king. But instead he is mocking Jesus by saying that indeed he is a king. Jesus' response to Pilate's mockery really reveals a great deal to us 2,000 years after the fact when Jesus says, I was born and came. Now, in the Greek, those words, born and came, those are verbs that are written in the perfect tense and they express something that's really important. It's not only a past event that's happened, but it's one that continues in its effects. In other words, Christ has been born, he has come into the world, but the effects of him being in the world remain today. That perfect tense expresses completed action in the past, but it also is presently continuing in its results. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that to be a king, he had to be incarnate. He had to be born a man. To be king, he had to enter into the world. The action has taken place in the past, and yet the effects of it continue on into the future for you and I. So this morning, what I would like us to do is to look at five different reasons why you and I can believe that Jesus is a king. The first thing I want us to look at is that Jesus is actually proclaimed to be a king. In the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, it was written 500 years before Jesus ever came on the scene here on earth. The book of Isaiah, we've talked about this many times, was written 750 years approximately before Jesus' birth. And yet Isaiah alone contains over 20 prophecies about the Messiah who were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the prophet writes this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As we read in the New Testament about Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, Zechariah's words are fulfilled. 
In Luke chapter 19, verse 37, the crowds declare, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, we've talked about this before. But mathematically, the possibility of just eight of these Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in one person is the same as 10th to the 17th power. In other words, cover the state of Texas to a depth of 24 inches with silver dollars, put an X on one of them, and then hide it, and then take someone and blindfold them and tell them that they have a chance to pick up one silver dollar, and that is the same chance that they would pick up that one silver dollar anywhere that they walk and select it throughout the state of Texas. It's amazing that there are more than 350 prophecies found in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus. Those prophecies proclaim to you and I that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the King. Secondly, there's a great reason for you and I to put our trust in the fact that Jesus is our King, and that is that he was born a king. Matthew's gospel tells us about a group of individuals called the Magi. We often refer to them as the wise men. But I want you to look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I'll give you a second to turn there. But they're saying this to King Herod. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it reads in Matthew chapter 2, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, here's what they asked Herod, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So these magi, these wise men, they saw something in the stars that indicated to them that a king in Israel was going to be born. And they followed that star from the east. They, they followed it and they came to that place and they were able to then ask Herod that question. Now, let me ask you this. Do you believe that Herod actually believed that there would be a baby who would be born to be a king there in Judea, in Israel. Well, I'll tell you this, he believed it enough to have all of the baby boys two years old and under in the area around Bethlehem killed. You see, Herod's jealous desire to protect his throne had already led him to kill and murder his wife and three of his children. Because he was so jealous, so protective of his throne, he had them murdered. We understand from Barnes' notes on the Bible, from Roman historians like Tacitus, Jewish historians like Josephus and Philo, that uh, they all attest to the fact that there was this ancient prevailing expectation that a man would come out of Judea and he would rise to attain univ a universal empire. And this is widely accepted as an expectation that you and I can understand that is confirmed in the birth of Jesus Christ. That he was born a king. Thirdly, 
Jesus is celebrated as a king. As I said earlier, Jesus was proclaimed to be a king 500 years before his birth by the prophet Zechariah. In Luke's account of the Passion Week, we learn that as Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, people laid their garments on the road in front of him and they yelled out so that everyone could hear them, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we read in, the, in John's gospel of his eyewitness account, his eyewitness testimony, he adds a couple of more details. John chapter 12, verse 12 is where it's found. Let's look at it. It says, the next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. Now Jesus was coming from a a small community called Bethany and he was making the journey into Jerusalem. It was about a two-mile journey. And these people heard about it and they, uh, they began to pour out of the city. Now these were people that had come into Jerusalem from all over uh, the region, all over Palestine because of the Passover celebration. So there were literally thousands upon thousands of Jews that were in Jerusalem at that time time that normally would not have been there and these people are rushing out in order to get a a glimpse of the Messiah. I remember a number of years ago when uh, we had a a presidential visit here in the city of Marquette and and, and that day uh, my wife actually took the kids out and stood along Highway 553 um, so that they could get a glimpse of the motorcade that was coming by that day from the airport into the city. These people wanted a glimpse. They wanted to begin, they wanted to be able to see Jesus. They waved palm branches. They shouted, Hosanna, deliver us now. They were worshiping Jesus as their king. This was so significant that the Pharisees said to each other, listen, it's like the whole world is following after Jesus. I was thinking about this as I was writing the message and I I remembered that in John chapter 6, after Jesus has fed the 5,000, Jesus literally had to slip away out of the crowd because they were so intent on on making him their king by force. John 6.15 says... He had fed the 5,000, they saw his miracles, they believed this is the Messiah, this is our king, this is the person that's going to deliver us from Roman oppression, let's make him our king by force. Jesus was celebrated as a king. Number four, I think it's important for us to realize that Jesus was convicted for being a king. As we read Luke's account, we tend to glance over some really important words contained chapter 23 and verse 38. It said that there was a notice, a written notice above him. This is while Jesus is actually on the cross now, which read, This 
is the king of the Jews. That sign that was written there, that sign was something that was carried in the procession from inside the city. Once Jesus had been charged, once Jesus had been convicted, that sign would have been carried in front of him on the way out to Golgotha. It would have been written in three languages so that everyone would have been able to read it. And it was something that was written so that people would know what this person was convicted of. John records an objection by the, the Jewish chief priests and he said, Listen, no, don't, don't write that this is the king of the Jews. I want you to write that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate's answer was this, what I have written, I have written. You say, well, what does that really mean? Was Pilate just lazy and he didn't want to redo the sign? No, what it really means to you and I is that upon the authority of the Roman government, Jesus was convicted of the crime of being the king of the Jews. In our society, there's only one, one power that can convict us of a crime, and that is through our judicial system. It's our government. Jesus was convicted by the Roman government, and the charge against him that he was convicted of was that he was the king of the Jews. And number five, This is the reason why you and I can put our trust in him, in Jesus, as our king. Is that he returns as a conquering king. We come to this final aspect of Jesus' kingship. And I want to read from Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 11. John the Revelator says this, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And here's verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. As I was preparing this message, the, the sound of Handel's Messiah was just ringing out in my mind. And he shall reign forever and ever, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John the Revelator paints this picture of Jesus 
as a conquering king. This is the same John that wrote in John chapter 18, verse 37, the conversation that took place between Jesus and Pilate when Pilate said, you are a king then. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Friends, the reason that Jesus was born, the reason that he came, was to establish himself as our king. He spoke it of past action with present continuing results, and it is confirmed in our hearts today. You know, when we were children, we would say things, and we would want to convince someone that we were speaking the truth. But because in our young age we really hadn't built up enough credibility to stand on our own words, we would say things to try to convince people and we would add on these little things to show them how serious we were, how truthful we were being. And I remember the saying, cross my heart and hope to die. What we were really doing is we were trying to summon up all the assurance that we possibly could that what we were saying was true. Now today, I have stated to you that Jesus is indeed our King. And I don't want you to accept that statement based on assurance that you receive from me by something that I muster up, by some way that I try to convince you and say, cross my heart and hope to die. But I want you to put your trust in the fact that Jesus is our King because it was proclaimed 500 years, 750 years before Jesus was even born because he was celebrated on this earth as king, because he was convicted for being a king and his promise that he will return for you and I as a conquering king. And on this Palm Sunday, we do not have to hide in fear because we worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This morning, I'd like us to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Hopefully, you've been able to make those preparations. And so, if you just want to take a moment and begin to pass those elements out to your family members, the bread or cracker and the juice... And if we would just all hold those until the appropriate time, that would be wonderful. I just want to read from Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20, of the events that happened on that night where Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Passover together. It says he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'd like us to pray together. Our precious Heavenly Father, we hold in our hands these symbols, these emblems of Jesus' body and his blood. 
And we want to say thank you. Thank you, God, that, that you gave your only begotten son. Thank you for the plan of salvation, for the fact that that plan was developed before the foundations of the world. And thank you, Jesus, that you came, you were willing to be born, you were willing to live and to die, and you gave your body for the cross. And so today, God, we proclaim our thanks. We proclaim our our trust that Jesus is indeed our King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And for that, we thank you for his body which is given for us. Would you partake of the bread together? Then in verse 20, it says, In the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And Father, I pray that as we remember, as we celebrate, as we declare that Jesus is our King, He is our Lord, I thank You for that forgiveness. And this morning, within the sound of my voice, if there is one person that has not accepted Jesus as their personal Savior, as their personal King, as their personal Lord, I pray that even right now, that they would simply pray, God, I know that I need you. I am a sinner, and I believe that Jesus died for me, and I want to invite him into my heart and into my life to forgive me of my sins. I want him to be my Lord. I want him to be my Savior. I believe that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, your word tells us that you hear that prayer. And even now, in the midst of this celebration of the Lord's Supper, the one who prays that prayer, the Bible says that all of heaven rejoices when even one sinner comes home. And Father, we thank you because the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And it's only because of Jesus' shed blood on the cross of Calvary that we can be forgiven. And so we thank you for the blood of Jesus shed for our sins. Would you partake of the cup together? If you prayed that prayer this morning for the first time, I want you to know that literally all of heaven rejoices because of your decision to make Jesus your King, your Lord, and your Savior. Here at Silver Creek, we have a gift for you that we would like to put in your hands. It's called Following Jesus. At the end of this broadcast, if you would private message us on our church's Facebook page and give us your contact information, we would gladly send you this devotional that will help you in this decision that you have made to make Jesus your Savior and your King. 
And I believe that through it, you're going to have the opportunity to grow in your faith and to grow in that relationship with the Lord. And we want to put that in your hands. There's no cost. There's no obligation. It's simply our gift to you. Please let us know if you made that decision today. It's been wonderful to be with all of you here today through the medium of Facebook. I'm so glad that we can continue to lift up the Lord together to worship the Lord. Let me pray for you before we go this week. Our precious Father, I just pray for those that are a part of our church family. And God, I know that there are some today that, that really are struggling because of things that have happened to them throughout the week. Father, even those that, that, that um, have found out that they have been exposed to the virus. Father, there may be those that, that because of their own physical uh, condition, because of their own illness or something happening in their life, they're, they're really feeling anxious because they don't know if they're going to be able to get everything that they need. Father, those that, that maybe are feeling really a separation from their family and their friends and they're struggling with that. Father, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would begin to minister to them right now. Father, I, I thank you for the words of Peter in 1 Peter where he, he shared with the believers, don't fear what they fear. And we know that in our world right now there is a spirit of fear. But Father, we know that you have given us a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind rather than a spirit of fear. And so we embrace those things today. And Father, I pray for those that that they are struggling, I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that you would lift them up. I pray that they would become connected with other followers of Christ on a daily basis where they can be encouraged and built up. And I pray that through the Holy Spirit, you would strengthen them today. Father, I pray for our nation. I pray for our leaders. I pray for our governor here in the state of Michigan. I pray for, for Wayne County. I pray for the city of Detroit and things that are happening there, hospitals that are being built right now to treat those that are infected. Father, I pray for our president, for our nation, for those that are in positions of leadership. I pray, oh God, that, that literally they would begin to seek your face as never before. And your word tells us that if, that, that if we seek your face, if we turn from our sin, that, that we will literally hear, hear from heaven and you will heal our land. Father, our land needs to be healed today. And so we come to you, O oh God, and we confess our need of you as a nation. And I pray, Lord, that America would turn her face toward you. Father, we know that our nation is guilty of great sin. We ask you to forgive us, O oh God. Set us on a straight path again, we pray. Father, I pray for peace for your people. Lord, as we live out these days, and I pray that we will see a great victory in Jesus' name. And Lord, we can't wait till you bring us all back together again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
It's been wonderful to be with you. I want you to know that we are praying for you, especially those that are on the front line, those that are serving directly with the community, whether you're a part of an essential business or whether you're in law enforcement or whether you're a medical professional. We are holding you up in prayer at this time and praying for God's hand to rest upon you. God bless you and have a wonderful day. Please reach out if you have a need. If you need prayer, let us know so that we can reach out to you. Have a great day.